Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Vic. This episode contains a lot of strong language and some vivid descriptions of domestic violence. Please be advised. In three, two, one. For most people, getting married is one of the happiest days of your life. It's something that requires months of preparation and sometimes years of anticipation. When Leah V got married, though, that's not how she felt. It was very, very shady. Actually, I call it my practice wedding. Okay. And I don't I don't count it at all because it was so fucked up. <laughs> So I just graduated from college, no job. I have to find somewhere to live outside of the campus. So I ended up finding this kind of month-to-month roach-infested apartment in the ghetto. But I'm like, I'm grown now. You got to do what you got to do. Leah grew up in a Black Muslim community in Detroit. She was preparing for her wedding day after just graduating college at the age of 19. So it's really interesting because I never really wanted a family. I never really wanted to be married, especially because my mom was divorced so many times. My mom was married and divorced, I think, over nine times. So my views of marriage and family were very skewed. I didn't want it. I didn't want that for me. But we were not married and we were sleeping together. And we both wanted to be devout Muslims. And it was starting to weigh on us very heavily. So we were like, okay, we do like each other or we love each other. We also like won't stop sleeping with each other. So the next step would be to get married. It it was never like I wanted to do that, but it was like, this is the next step as a Muslim. So it wasn't exactly a romantic story. Absolutely not. We got to do this. We just got to do this. Yes. The night before the ceremony, Leah and her partner got into a huge fight. She told him the wedding was off and she never wanted to see him again. But when he came back to her apartment the next day, they patched things up. And even though their families didn't approve, they went ahead with the ceremony. 20 minutes later, we were married. Just like that. Wow. In an empty, roach-infested apartment with no couch, no table. Very, very shady. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, well, at least you had an audience, right, with the roaches. <laughs> they were somewhere around at that time, <laughs> somewhere, peeking, peeking around the crack or something. <laughs> and while Leah can laugh about it now, the rocky start to this marriage was a sign of things to come. A complicated and at times disastrous relationship. Leah's experience in this marriage would mirror what she encountered growing up. Her childhood contained periods of abuse and violence. She's had to fight most of her life to get what she wants and needs. Today, you're going to hear about how Leah V. broke that cycle and turned her identity into her greatest asset. But it wasn't simple, and it wasn't easy. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs 
the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Leah V grew up in a very troubled home. Her father was absent and her mom cycled through husbands frequently. Leah and her siblings had many stepfathers over the years, but there was one that particularly stood out. In Leah's memoir, she refers to him as the Algerian. He was a very interesting character. I remember when I first saw him, I was a little kid, and we were in the back of my mom's van. And I remember this white looking man on a bicycle, just riding up with a big smile on his face. And my mom is like, oh, um, we're married. Just like that. Yes. And I'm like, again, we're, you know, for like all the viewers of color, like especially the black ones, you don't talk back. You don't ask questions. If your black mama says something, that's it. There's no questioning. And so she said it and I'm just like, oh, that that was it, just like an internal oh, right? You can't make any actual sounds. And yeah, that was it. And I just remember him being very young and kind of vibrant, uh, didn't know a lot of English. And it took a turn, of course. It always does in my mom's marriages. It started to become very toxic, like extremely toxic from both sides, honestly. It wasn't just like one or the other. They mm-hmm. both had some traumas that they never talked about and they both just like mixed into this big ball of trauma. He was not ready for that type of woman and she was not ready for that type of man. Gosh, so it was like the perfect storm of two people who yeah. are really suffering. Yes, it's like looking back on an album, it's like absolutely not. They should have never ever connected. We definitely experienced some some negative things with him as well as, as being our stepfather. You know, it is kind of that old, like, misery loves company, right? Mm-hmm. Leah says her mother and stepfather were at constant war. And those fights weren't exactly one-sided. They could both be physically and emotionally abusive toward one another. But one day, things got really bad. Leah remembers being upstairs with some of her siblings, while her mother and stepfather were downstairs, along with Leah's baby brother, who was still an infant at the time. I heard a huge knock on the ground on the first floor as if something heavy had hit the floor. And so, of course, like I run downstairs. As I'm running, I hear a piercing scream come from my little brother, who is literally in a blanket steal. When I turned the corner, I saw my mom on the ground, kicking her legs up. I see said Algerian stepfather kind of over her. And I don't like ask questions on like how it happened. All I see is like baby screaming, mom's on the floor, man over her. And I'm just like, okay, get the baby. And so I'm getting him, trying to console him. My younger brother and sister also run downstairs. We're trying to separate them however way we could they're still like trying to get at each other we end up running to the back room which was our classroom because we were homeschooled and we all kind of barricaded ourselves in there with my mother he kept trying to get inside I don't know why I remember asking him like why won't you just leave like why won't you just go and he's still talking in Arabic and with the broken English And he's really mad at my mother for whatever reason. 
and he finally busts in. And my little brother, he's my little big brother. He literally like took my stepfather by the collar and just pushed him back. Mm-hmm. And then we ran upstairs and um, the police were called. And so the police ended up coming and not taking him away, but escorting him away. Basically, it was like, get your clothes, get your whatever you got to get. But you cannot stay here. You cannot stay here. And he's like, this is my fucking house. I'm not understanding. I pay rent here. Why do I have to leave? And they're like, you have to go somewhere else. It was no charges pressed or anything like that. But he did get taken away. Hmm. Leo V, how old were you then? Um, I think I might have been like maybe 15. I think I was like 15 or yeah, 15. That's a lot to handle for someone that age, for any age, for crying out loud. Um, What what was that like for you? Mm, Honestly, I think my goal was to, I I mean, I I internalize a lot of stuff. Yeah. So at the moment, I remember being scared, but not like phased. I just wanted like, you know, my little brother to be okay. I wanted my mom to like not be crying or upset. So I think I probably just honestly at that point internalized it. I don't think there was any conversation afterwards. It was no consoling. It was like, okay, he's going. So hopefully it gets better. And I like to always tell people during interviews, I think that sometimes we like to demonize these people, right? Like, okay, this person did this bad thing to me. But at the same time, my mom kept her kids clean and safe for the most part. And she did the best she could with what she had. So I like to tell people, like, sometimes we're a lot, we're really quick to demonize people and not humanize them. And so, yeah, she made some mistakes and they should have never happened, but they did. And she kept me alive to the point where I could do the things that I'm doing right now. Right. So I like to always put that in there. (laughs) No, thank you for saying that. And that's so important. And I agree a hundred percent. Like I, you know, I struggled with drugs and alcohol my whole life. And when I was a little kid, my dad was an alcoholic. And when he would be in the throes of his drinking, you didn't want to be around him because he'd be cursing at the Broncos game or something like that and being mean. But at the same time, looking back in my own recovery, I see that he was, he was in pain a lot. And, and he was suffering a lot. Clearly, you see that with your mom. I mean, she suffered a lot. Mm-hmm. Growing up in this, and you know, surrounded by so much, you know, I mean, madness. Did you have a form of escape? So I was a very thoughtful child. I didn't really speak much because I didn't feel that I had a voice, number one. And I felt like nothing I said was worth um, anyone listening to. So a lot of times I internalized conversations and and stories. And I think that's why I became obsessed with storytelling at a very young age, because I felt like that was my escape, right? Oftentimes I would create these fantasy worlds where I was basically a white heroine because I felt like that was a way that I can get out of, you know, being a a black girl with no father living in Detroit. Leah got married at the age of 19. She was doing well academically. She graduated early from her business degree and was eager to get her master's. Her marriage, on the other hand, was showing cracks and falling apart. 
One night, it all came to a head. But looking back now, Leah's able to see some humor in this terrible situation. It was hurtful, but it was also hilarious <laughs> because just it was so dumb. But at the moment, it was so serious, right? And so what happened is, you know, long story short, he worked a lot. You know, I worked a lot. And so this particular night, my friends asked me, did I want to go out and party with them? I'm like, no, I'm going to take my husband to the movies. We never get time together. So I'm being nice. So I get home and I'm like, okay, he's on the couch, just chilling with the cat. And I'm just like, you know, you ready? He's like, I'll get ready when you're ready. You know, already had an attitude. Yeah. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. It's fine, it's fine. Go into the room, I put some clothes on. I had pants on, a long sleeve shirt, and then I put another like lace shirt over the top to kind of make it more modest, because I know how he is. I come out, ask him if he's ready to go. He looks me up and down, like I am nothing. He's like, I'm not going out with you until you change your clothes. And I'm like, why would I change my clothes? This is what I'm wearing. Mm. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere with you with your butt out. You look like a slut. And I was like, oh, wow. So I went back in the room. Then I turned around. I was like, you know what? I'm not changing. This is what I'm wearing. And so you need to get your clothes on because the movie's about to start. He starts calling me slut again. And at that point, I was enraged. It went from zero to hundred really quick. I remember just, I think attacking him, honestly. And he used to do like MMA classes and stuff like that. So he's, you know, he's, he knows how to like pin people down. So I remember trying to fight him because him calling me a slut, it, it triggered me in, in many, many ways. He pinned me down on the ground. He's like, you need to calm down. I'm like, I will never stop trying to hurt you. And I remember saying that as I was pinned to the ground, like, I'm going to hurt you. That's it. So you can let me out, but I'm going to attack you again. He sat on me for a little bit longer. By this time, I'm out of breath. And then we fight, tussle some more when he gets up. Mind you, my cat, Kitty Boo Boo, is very skittish. Mm. And he ends up getting a hanger, throws it at my face, it hits me in the eye. So now my eye is injured and ran. And so I'm just like, why won't you just like leave? Like, why won't you just go? And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. Kind of like the same situation with my mom and the Algerian husband, right? And so I was just like, I went to the room and I pretended to call the police so that he can go. I wasn't really calling them. So he went outside and sat in the car. I thought he had driven away. So I see red and blue lights out the window. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. I look out the window and I see his car still sitting there and the police officers talking to him. And I'm like, oh my God, the police are actually here. Like, how can I finesse my way out of this? Because I don't know what he was telling them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of opened the front door a little bit and tried to like eavesdrop. So my cat, Kitty Boo Boo, ran out the door and I'm like, oh my fucking God. Oh, <laughs> like, no. like, would you come here? Like, stop. Like, you're ruining the eavesdrop. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so Kitty Boo Boo just runs out the door. I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck? Okay, that's, uh, I'm sorry, that's really funny. No, and the, and the cops, of course, take notice of the cat. Like, me trying to get the cat back in, you know, trying to be incognito. And they come and talk to me. And so I'm a finesser. Like, I speak well. And so I'm like, okay, you got this, bitch. 
So they talk to me, they walk in, they're like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing. What are you talking about? And they're like, that's not what he said. So they're looking at all the like clothes on the floor, the hanger, the pots and the pans. They see like, it looks like a war zone in my apartment. Oh God. And they're like, what's this thing? I'm like, okay, listen, listen, listen. We had a little, you know, just a little situation. Everything's fine. I'm cleaning it up. Look, so I'm like showing them how I'm cleaning up. And they're like, ma'am, he says that you scratched him in the face and you need to turn around. We're, we're taking you to jail. And I'm just like, wow. So I dropped my phone and they handcuffed me and um, they take me to jail. And I remember asking them to pull back around so I can talk to my ex and tell him about the cat. And so they actually turned back around and, and like lower the, the back window. And I just remember saying, please don't hurt kitty boo-boo. And just like the window rolled back up, just so dramatic for no reason. <laughs> he would never hurt the cat. It's just like, I felt like I didn't say that. I love that your last words to your husband at that moment were, please don't hurt kitty boo-boo. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he needs to know that. <laughs> I understand the laughing about this stuff because my first time being arrested, the we were at a, a, a grocery store. The cops, my friend was playing with a bunch of weed in the car while I was inside. And then the security guards came and tried to take me out of the store. And I'm, I'm flying on cocaine and I'm in the produce section throwing mangoes at the security <laughs> officers. And... <laughs> Not mangoes. (laughs) And the funny thing is, do you remember that show Cops? Yes. I was not on Cops, thank God, but I was wearing a a black hat that had the logo, Cops logo. Crying. That was the thing that amused everyone in that holding cell. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. And as silly as some parts of these stories can be to look back on, Others aren't so silly. Leah says once she actually got to that jail, there was nothing funny about her experience at all. They made me remove my hijab, which was very upsetting. Oh. There were no female officers. They were like, we can't do that because they, we don't have female officers. When I tried to like use the bathroom, they had to stand in the doorway. It was very, very traumatic. What a terrible experience, Leah V. Yeah. Do you remember what you were thinking when you were sitting inside that jail cell? I just remember being like your anger, your inability to deal with your emotions landed you here. It was never like, oh, he's the reason why I'm here. Never, not once. I was like, you're the reason you're in here. You're in a whole master's program, sweetheart. You have so much life to live. And you literally let someone calling you a slut even though he should never have said that, you allowed that to put you in jail. And I just kept thinking that over and over and over again. And also like thinking about my cat, Kitty Boo Boo, I was like, she needs you. And she lended comfort to me just even thinking about her when I was in there. And so I definitely thought a lot about how I'm gonna change my life around and how I would never put my hands on another human being ever, would never pull out a knife or weapon on another human being. And I've kept my promise I've not put my hands on anybody since then, not wielded a knife at anybody or a pencil, any weapon. Like I've not done that. And and I'm proud that I've kept my promise because that really traumatized me. It was a real turning point for you. Yes. How Leah V turned her life around 
after the break. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a back from broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. For a lot of people, finding your path to recovery rarely happens on a straight line. Oftentimes, it's a series of little steps mixed in with very big steps. Steps forward and backward, and sometimes off to the side there is always a first step. And for Leah V, she knew she needed to take it when she was in college, where she had her first panic attack. I remember the day when I was literally in the shower and I just kind of like fell over and just laid there. My heart was beating so quick. I felt like I was, I was having a heart attack. I felt like I was going to die. And I just lay there and let the water pitter-patter on my body. And I was like, I don't know what the hell this is, but I don't feel okay. And of course, you know, being a strong black woman, that trope, you don't reach out for help because you, you've been told like, oh, you're weak or you don't want to burden other people. And so I had had bouts of anxiety attacks and depression and stuff like that and anger, lots of anger. But When I did try to reach out, it was, you know, pray more, do better, or it would be don't get on medication because you're not going to be able to get a job if you get on any type of medication. So that's what I was working up against when I would have anything. So I didn't want to go to therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, anything. So I'm like, they're going to put me on papers. It's going to be in my record forever. Yep. There's that stigma holding Mm -hmm. us back. Yeah. Yep. And so that's why I didn't get help because I thought like I wouldn't be able to work. So after the 60th panic attack, I didn't know how to handle what I was going through. And so I got a sore on my gums and I couldn't really chew. So I went to the dentist. He's like, it's a stress related, like mass on your gums. Wow. And I'm like, that's crazy. My eye was twitching really bad. And so I was like, you know what? You need to get help because I feel like you're going, you're, you're, it's just getting worse and you're doing things that are not helping. Well, let me ask you, because I mentioned stigma before, because there is a lot of stigma around going to a therapist in just every day, but then you have the the religion component on top of that that you had to deal with. Mm-hmm. You've written about that, that stigma in the Muslim community. How did you overcome that? I think I overcame it by seeing what I didn't want to be. I was surrounded by a shit ton of very mentally ill Muslims, very mentally ill Black family members, a lot of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, drug use, all these things that nobody wanted to talk about, but 
were basically destroying people and families. And I was like, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person who slowly destroys other people because I'm hurt. Like how people try to do me. And I had to make a conscious decision to do something different. And I didn't know where it was going to lead to. I had no fucking clue. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Like, I didn't know where, you know, the path of breaking the cycle. Like, I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I was like, you can't do this. You can't keep living like this. So I was like, okay, let's do it. Like, it's going to be a lonely path, but it's going to pay off in the end. Like, that was my hope. Um, and I always held hope that something better was out there. And, you know, I'm not that religious. I feel like I'm more spiritual than religious, but I always had hope that if you take the steps to change the narrative, like it has to work out in the end. It has to like, and, and I hang, and I hung on to that, but it was lonely because I had to cut people off. I had to create boundaries but I'm so glad I did it because I would not be here right now if I continued that path therapy really changed Leah's life but you don't just go to therapy and then your problems magically disappear it takes a lot of work and Leah wasn't alone in that work she needed her partner to make some changes too her husband agreed but He wanted to go see a Muslim therapist, which Leah did not want to do. So they decided to go to a non-denominational therapist and struggled to find common ground. Her husband continued to question Leah's devotion to God and wanted her to change the way she dressed. Leah says he refused to make any compromises and he often got into arguments with the therapist. He's like, okay, so like, what do you think we should do? Like, what is your like you know, what do you think we should do? She's like, honestly, in my opinion, you two should get a divorce Mm. and I will send you guys the invoice in the mail. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. (laughs) And he's like, I thought we were doing so good in there. And I'm like, no, she hated you. Do you see the way her, (laughs) her like tongue would click and her finger, she would snap the pen up and down, up and like you were, you were physically like, bothering her she just couldn't say anything because she's a therapist he's like i thought we were like making headway i'm like she hates you (laughs) and it was just it was just like i'm like wow like are you not wow he had zero self-awareness none none wow he's like we're doing so well (laughs) she's like get out get divorced and here's the bill (laughs) so yeah that was the situation (laughs) Well, I mean, it sounds like it needed to end. Yeah. Did you ever lose faith at that time? Oh, of course. During the divorce and then after it was finalized, I definitely was like toggling. Is Islam really for me? Mm. I've been called sluts and hoes and I've been called all types of things that, you know, you shouldn't call like Muslims should never call other Muslims. 
I've been told I, you know, wear too much nail polish and too much makeup. I was too ambitious that I should be having his kids and keeping kids away from him is going against God. I've been told all types of things about how I was inadequate as a Muslim. And so once you're told how much you suck at something, you're just like, fuck it. I won't do it at all. And so I was definitely like, looking at the hijab like okay do I really want to wear it because I can't wear it properly uh, according to them I can't be what they want me to be so why am I hanging on to being a Muslim so hard like why am I hanging on to something that I can't do and it took me a couple months to really dive into what Islam meant to me without the husband without the community like stripped all that bare and like what was left And I have to go through my own trials and tribulations to find out that I can indeed be Muslim on my terms. I don't owe it to anybody to show you that I'm the poster child for Islam. I don't owe that to non-Muslims and I definitely don't owe it to Muslims. And so I had to really dig deep into what it looks like stripped bare, you know, objectively. And I found out that I am very much so Muslim. I love the religion, but I'm gonna do it on my terms. After the divorce, Leah was able to do a lot more on her terms. She was free to more fully commit herself to her creative career. Before the divorce, she started a blog and started to dip her toe into styling and work in the fashion industry. When she was on sets for photo shoots, she kept getting asked if she was one of the models. Eventually, she started an Instagram page. And after the divorce, she started putting herself out there more and more. And people noticed. So in the beginning, people like were saying, like, I've never seen like a fat black and Muslim person doing this. Like I was the first there. There was none. I mean, there was Muslims, there was hijabis. They're mostly like Middle Eastern, maybe a couple Somalis sprinkled in there. But there was never like a fat black divorced American Muslim from, you know, the, the D doing that, dressing crazy and crazy lipstick and lashes and nails. Like nobody was doing that. And of course, like I was trying to do it while I was married and he didn't approve of it at all. He's like, I don't understand like why you have to be visible. I don't think Muslim women, especially married ones should be in the limelight like that. Like you should be for your husband's eyes only. So he definitely hindered me in some ways, but I just kept pushing it and pushing the bar and doing stuff sometimes secretly doing like little photo shoots and just creating content yeah, and people really resonated with it. Like not just fat people or Muslim people, but everybody, the queer community, like, you know, old white women from Wisconsin, like women in India. Like I would get messages like, Oh my God, like, this is so cool. Your story is similar to mine. Like keep doing what you're doing. And then you put out an amazing video called Muslim girl dance. Visibly Muslim hijabi. I'm fat, but don't get it twisted. Are you afraid that if we could actually love, really love our true selves, imperfections and all, that we'd be free? In this video, Leah V confidently walks and dances around downtown Detroit. Do I make you feel uncomfortable? She's wearing a number of different outfits, but always wears a t-shirt that says, Believe. The video is simple and powerful. She's unapologetically being herself. It honestly changed my life for the better. Wow. Well, you you did this because you you wanted to create a video about body positivity and to elevate the visibility of people that look like you. Yes. What was the response like? 
I got like so much love from like all over the world. It was amazing for people to be like, I've never seen this before. And you look amazing. You, you did amazing. You, you lit a spark in me that I didn't know I had before. And then on the other end, I got death threats from mostly Muslim men and mm. white men. Death threats and body shaming, fat shaming. I had to turn off my notifications for couple of days because like the hate was so disgusting and so that just pisses me off i mean it just pisses me off why does it bother you like okay if it's not your cup of tea fine don't watch it but why do you have to be so pissed off at something that doesn't affect your life one bit they were mad about it <laughs> they were so upset yeah. I, I didn't yeah. get it either i literally was just dancing in the streets of detroit um and 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 saying how i think that uh, you know, all bodies should be celebrated. And that really struck a chord with a lot of people. I wanted to create something from us, you know, by us. And just to shed light on, not everybody is going to fit into that stereotype of what a Muslim should look like or what a Muslim does or how she speaks. We're not monoliths. And I wanted to break that ideology of like, okay, Muslim women look and sound like one thing because it's just not the case. And that's central to what Leah V does now. She's a writer, content creator, model, and social media star with a fierce following. Since releasing the Muslim Girl dance video, Leah moved to New York City, and she's been in ads for brands like Target and UGG, and featured in publications like Cosmopolitan, Glamour, and InStyle. And while she sometimes has to deal with internet trolls, Leah V provides desperately needed representation and is a role model to a lot of people now. It feels surreal. It feels magical. I cry every time people tell me about how I've affected them because I'm a baby, clearly. <laughs> and I never thought I would be that for somebody. What advice would you have for someone who, who might be struggling and who might be thinking about getting help and, and seeking out therapy? I would tell them to... Definitely go into therapy open because if you go to therapy closed, you're not going to get the full benefits. If you're not willing to at least try to tell the truth, you're not going to get the full benefits. Just like my ex, when we went to, you know, therapy, he wasn't willing to be open. He wasn't willing to be honest. And that shit is so hard. It is very much yeah. so easier said than done. Yeah. But if you want to be on the other side of greatness, mental greatness, spiritual greatness, like whatever greatness you, you, you're you seeking in life, and we're all seeking that, whether we want to admit it or not, like you have to be open, honest, and try to be vulnerable, be more vulnerable than you were the day before. Because once you get to that, it feels so damn good. It feels so good to live in your truth. I couldn't put it any better. Like you are just lifting that weight off that you don't need to carry around. Mm -hmm. And oh, I feel silly talking about my problems. No, screw that. You, you deserve to be happy and you deserve to share whatever you're going through. You know, and the more we talk about this stuff, the less scary it is. Exactly. It definitely gets easier, I think. People don't just jump into being vulnerable or being honest. Like, it's a process. And to be gentle with yourself, to understand that 
we're human beings and we're going to go up and down and down and down and maybe up, up, up. And that is totally okay. That's so fine. Leah V continues to live and work in New York City, where she continues to talk openly about her struggles and successes on social media. You can learn even more about Leah in her memoir called Unashamed, Musings of a Fat Black Muslim. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with domestic abuse or mental health issues, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Rebecca Romberg. Find a list of all the folks who worked hard to make this episode in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.